Hello and welcome to the first Lancet podcast of 2014 and a happy new year to you all. I'm Richard Lane and in this podcast we're focusing on the launch of a new series in Lancet. It is published online on Wednesday, January the 8th and it is called Research, Improving Value, Reducing Waste. A subject highly relevant to the Lancet and anyone connected with scientific publications. So to find out more, I spoke to one of the gurus behind this series. He is also the subject of a profile also published online alongside the series of five papers and two comments. That is Paul Glazew, who is Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at Bond University in Queensland on Australia's Gold Coast. And I began by asking him, what was the motivation for a series in The Lancet about research? The genesis of the idea was conversations that I'd had with Ian Chalmers about the problem of going from answering the right um, research questions, the uncertainties that are uh, abound in clinical practice, having it actually improve patient outcomes. So there's a sort of long chain of steps that needs to occur. And over a series of conversations, Ian and I were actually trying to go right from that beginning point, the uncertainty, right to improving patient care. We ended up having a sort of pivotal moment where we came up with the model that was in the 2009 um, Lancet article that Ian and I wrote, which had four stages of waste. The first was the right questions being addressed. The second was the design of the research. Research often has significant flaws in the way that it's put together. The third is non-publication. That is that it's been well documented that roughly half the research that ever gets done, particularly clinical trials, um, ever actually gets into a journal. And then the fourth is the poor reporting of the research. And I've been particularly concerned with the descriptions of interventions that have been studied in trials. But the same is true of diagnostic tests or prognostic markers. So that was about the halfway point, in in a sense, in getting to the patient. But that's a necessary part um, to get there. When we put those steps together, we suddenly realised, gee, there's an awful lot of waste that goes on in all of these. So each of those steps... Um, people had been concerned about and had been documenting the problems, but no one had put them together and said, well, look, if you actually put them all together, you end up with, we calculated roughly 85% of the research going to waste. We'd estimated somewhere between $100 and $200 billion a year. It's probably closer to the $200 billion mark, and that includes um, public and private research, so commercial research as well as the... Um, the publicly funding research, which comes from governments and charities. And the US is probably is a substantial proportion of that. It used to be probably 50% or more, but it's probably dropping off as India and China rise. So if that 85% figure held true over $200 billion worth of research, then you're actually talking about $170 billion in waste. The simplest to understand is the non-publication. And even very big trials... Um, can can go unpublished. We've discovered a, a number of those. That's the easiest one to understand is the non-publication, but it's also this issue of people not addressing the right questions of fundamental flaws in the design that are easily fixable. Things like not randomising properly or blinding something that we know ha- is easy to blind. And then there's this problem of the poor reporting that people just don't give you sufficient details of reporting all the outcomes or reporting the descriptions of the interventions. And we've demonstrated that a lot of this is fixable. 
So one of the consequences of the 2009 publication was the National Institutes of Health Research in the UK took it seriously, which was very pleasing to see. And they've been looking at those four stages and actually have added a fifth on, which is in this new series, which is about the conduct of the research itself. And they've been trying to work out how to improve in the areas where they're falling down. And the first step is monitoring it. How often does everything get published? How good are those publications? How efficient are the processes of doing research? Presumably, technology and the availability of online resources, online databases, clinicaltrials.gov, the fact that clinical trials now have to be registered and are available online, that must be a good initiative. That must be an improvement in the past few years. Oh, yes, definitely, Richard. The clinicaltrials.gov is a fantastic resource. The all trials campaign to get all trials registered and all results reported is, is um, a great thing as well. Trials registration, which has taken a long time to develop. The proposal actually came in the um, early 1980s from uh, some work that John Symes, who was one of my mentors, had done showing the, the, the problem of publication bias. Mm. So it's been a long time developing. It's still not universal. So there are parts of the world now where it's mandatory to register, but that's not 100% universal. But even then, the work of Ross that we cite shows that the trial registration has um, not necessarily improved the publication rate. It probably now is improving access to data, particularly in the US because of clinicaltrials.gov, where you have to put the results of your studies within a period of time, even if you don't publish them. But the publication rate hasn't necessarily improved all that much, if at all. But we know it can be fixed. And the NIHR, again, has demonstrated that. The worldwide average, as I said, was about 50%. The HTA programs commissioned trials in the UK gets a 98% publication rate, which is the best I know of. And they do that through a number of mechanisms. One is um, a carrot or stick, if you like, of withholding 10% of funding until the main results have been published. But the guys there tell me that that's not the key thing. I think it's, it's useful to have that in the background as an incentive, but they contact people, they help tr troubleshoot, if you like, any problems that are occurring with the publication. And there can be all sorts of things. I know of authors who have um, whether trials that haven't been published because the author has retired or died or moved to a different institution. And then there's a loss of responsibility for the data that's sitting there. Indeed. And what about the journals itself, journals like The Lancet, publication bias? Um, a lot, there's a lot of research already being done in this area. Is there any sense of, of change happening there because journals are often criticised for not publishing negative outcome trials? I think that the negative trials are less likely to get published in the Lancet, but they do get published. And Taddy Dickerson, who uh, runs the, um, the, UK, the, sorry, the US Cochrane Centre, showed many years ago that the major problem is with authors not submitting their negative studies, not with the journals rejecting them. In a sense, it's the psychology of you've got, a, you've got lots of projects on the go, um, there's some really exciting positive results and you've got a few negative ones over here. Which ones do you bother to take to the conferences, write up, present, etc.? It's those exciting positives. But the negatives are important to communicate as well 
because they tell people dead ends, but also add to the body of research. So you get an, an overestimate of the positivity of the net um, set of results if you only have the positive studies. That's the publication bias part of it. But it's also just a waste because you can't accumulate that that um, half your evidence than if half of it's not being published. And part of the kind of psychology behind that from authors and from journals as well, of course, is that people like to be excited by progress in science. People like media coverage, publicity for themselves and their institution. It can, Im it can improve authors' careers, can't it, obviously, if uh, there's big media coverage, wide attention, wide citation. All of these things make a difference to individuals' careers and to journals' impact factors. So it's kind of inevitable, isn't it? Those motives, if you like, also influence the way we report as well, which is what the final paper in the series that ILED focuses on. Um, so people are biased in the way that they report the outcomes. Um, Anne Wen Chen, who's one of the, our co-authors, has demonstrated that people switch what they call the primary outcome mm. or add composites or new things in. They don't report all of their outcomes. They drop off some of the negative ones. And there's even a spin that creeps in in the way they even talk about the outcomes in the abstract or conclusions that occur because of this thing of, you know, wanting to in a sense, get the, the most out of um, that they have. I'm trying to say it very politely there. <laughs> so one of the things that we try and point out in this last article in the series is that you need to have access to the protocols as well. Yeah. And again, clinicaltrials.gov is helping with this because you have to specify in what you register what you're going to report. And when Chan's work showed, when he was able to compare the protocols with what actually got published, that's when he found that people weren't reporting all of their outcomes. Harms were less likely to be um, reported, and the adverse effects, um, and the negative um, outcomes were less likely to be reported. But if you've got the protocol available, it's harder to do that spin. And in fact, people can go directly to where it's reported in, in say, clinicaltrials.gov, where the whole set data set should be reported. That's what the All Trials campaign is partly about. It's not only all trials registered, but all results reported. That's not all data available, which would be nice, mm. but just saying anything that was specified in the protocol should be there in some publicly available repository, even if it's not in the journal publication. It should be available so that anyone can find it, particularly a systematic reviewer who's trying to pick up on all the results, not just the ones you liked. Tell us a little bit about systematic reviews and meta-analysis, because this is something I've seen increase in my time at Lancet over the past 14, 15 years. Is that a kind of growing trend in research now, to actually pull together and pool data, which obviously, if it's, if, if it's done well, can be a very powerful way of investigating something, but presumably there are huge risks associated with it as well. So one of the earliest examples of meta-analysis was in the 1970s, which was a radiotherapy for breast cancer, showing that when you put the trials together, there was a harm, which appeared to be an increase in cardiovascular mortality. It's taken a long time to be acceptable, but there's an acceleration of the number of systematic reviews being done the Cochrane collaboration clearly supporting that very strongly. That's been important in trying to get the right questions answered because um, some of the questions can be answered merely by putting the trials all together through a systematic review. But it can also tell you when 
basically a futility analysis as well, saying, you know, there's no point exploring this particular question any further. We have enough evidence and we can stop doing it, which is why many of the um, ethics committees and refunders now require people to produce a systematic review as justification prior to initiating a new trial. One of the impediments to that, though, is the amount of effort that now goes into doing a single systematic review. So one of the things that I'm very interested in that we mention briefly in, the, in this series is the need to bring down the costs in the same way that we brought down the costs of genetic sequencing dramatically over the last decade. We need to bring down the costs of systematic reviews through the use of semi-automated tools as well as just better systems, standardized standardized processes, etc. for doing it. And I think we can. I think we can actually bring down the costs in the same way that um, the genetic technology has come down if we invest in doing the process well. So we mentioned in the series the need for funders to invest in that sort of infrastructure, and that's one of the examples of infrastructure that's required in order to enable better quality research to be done. We need to make it very easy for a person to do a systematic review and to find out what's already been done. We need to make it easy for systematic reviewers to find out what research is out there through the trials registries and having all the results available so they can pull in the data more readily. We need better reporting tools so that people don't miss out on essential features when they're reporting um, the results of their trial to make that side of it easier. And again, computer tools can make that reporting job much easier for us too. Many thanks again to Paul Glazew. Do look out for the five research articles, two comments and the profile on Professor Glazew. That's all for now. Nikolai Humphreys will be presenting the Lancet podcasts for the next three months. I'll see you in April.